Hey folks, Brian Loritz here. Uh, welcome to the Summit's Kainos podcast. We are a pastoral podcast exploring what ethnic unity looks like in a large, predominantly white uh, Southern church who is aspiring to not only grow in diversity, but in what we call ethnic unity. I cannot tell you how excited I am uh, to have with us today's guest, author, Jonathan uh, Eig. He is an award-winning author of several books, uh, one of which is how I got to, and I put in quotes, no, Jonathan. It, uh, it was through his biography on Muhammad Ali, which was the winner of the Penn America Literary Award and a finalist for the Mark Linton History Prize. Jonathan also served as a senior consulting producer for the PBS documentary on Muhammad Ali, which I have seen. I think that's the one Ken Burns did uh, in four parts. And he has just released a biography on Martin Luther King Jr., simply called King a life. I just finished it. It was fantastic. In fact, I remember um, reading through it, just thinking, man, it would be so great to get some time on the podcast with Jonathan. I got done with it, and uh, I just kind of, out of the blue, sent an email, a Hail Mary in football terms to Jonathan, inviting him on the podcast, telling what we were about, and, uh, and here he is. So, Jonathan, welcome. Thanks, Brian. It's great to talk to you. Well, let's just get into it. You know, um, I'll be honest with you. I read some reviews on the King biography, and I'm excited. I've been studying King for years. Um, I used to pastor in Memphis. I think I told you that in the note that I sent you. We particularly came to plant our church in Memphis because we wanted to, um, you know, experience what King called the beloved community. We wanted a multi-ethnic church in one of the most, um, one of the most difficult divided cities to do that, and it was Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and one of the first things I did when I got there, of course, I had heard about and read some on King, but I started reading voraciously uh, about King. Uh, read things like Taylor Branch's three-part trilogy, which is not a King biography; it's a history of the civil rights movement. But he talks extensively about King, and read some of King's books. So. I got to, and I'm sure I'm not the first to feel this way, Jonathan. The only kind of sense of trepidation I had when I got your book is another book on King. You had to have felt that as you sat down to embark on a on a biography. Tell us about that, um, and what what do you think is the unique contribution of this biography? Well, yeah, I thought about it a lot. In fact, when I very when I first came up with the idea of doing this, my kids said, "Oh no, not another King book! You know, we've, <laughs> we've got enough of those, and we were tired of hearing about him in school." And uh, but I felt like it had been much too long since there was the kind of intimate biography that made you feel like you knew this man, that you were walking beside him, that you were, you know, driving with him through the night uh, between pit stops on his on his endless tour. And, uh, you know, in the time since those books that you mentioned, you know, Taylor Branch and David Garrow, those books are more than a quarter century old. Um, in the time since then, we've really watered down his message. We've forgotten just how radical and how brave he was. We've forgotten that he was human even, that he suffered, that that he, you know, had moments of doubt, that he had weaknesses. And we, we've turned him into kind of a, you know, a, a saint in a way. And um, I wanted to write a book that was more intimate, that would help you feel like you got to know him again um, in, a, in a closer way. And I wanted to do it while there were still people alive who knew him. That was an important part, too. 
Yes. Well, I, I got to tell you, John, they don't say this to flatter you. You know, I put you right up there with Chernow and a few others as far as just being my favorite modern day, modern day biographers. Um, Thank you. So how, how long? I mean, you've, you've done this. You've written uh, a biography on Lou Gehrig. You've written a biography on Muhammad Ali. You've written a biography on Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Um, how long did it take you to kind of live with King, so to speak, and, and write this biography? I'm tempted to quote King. How long? Very long. <laughs> very, very long. <laughs> it took me six years to do this book, and I, I could have spent another six years and not gotten tired or bored or um, lost my curiosity. Um, but I think six years, uh, this was the hardest book I ever wrote, uh, the most uh, challenging, because there was so much written about him already. And 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 his life, you know, even though it's only 39 years, uh, it touches on so many important parts of, of American history. And, and just um, the bar was really high. It had to be excellent. You know, it had to be worthy of the subject. So, um, yeah, six years from, okay. t- from start to finish. So, so when you, and we'll get into the weeds here because there's some very important topics I do want to talk to you about. Uh, about King that that you spend significant time on in the book, but when you're done, all right, you've you've hit send, and that manuscript is sent off. And of course, in the writer's uh, world, done is a very uh, um, is a very elastic term, right? But when you're done writing it, do you leave having spent so much time with King uh, more impressed? Do you leave? feeling about the same as when you first started the journey with King, or do you leave disappointed? What, 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 what was it? What was the feeling when you finished? You know, that's a great question, because for some subjects, you, I came away feeling a lot more com- conflicted. You know, Muhammad Ali, I went in idolizing, and I came away loving, but really feeling deep conflict about. Baham, but with Martin Luther King, I came away much more impressed and much more enamored than I did even going in. And I already loved him going in. I already felt like he may have been the most important American um, and the greatest American in many ways ever born. Uh, but I, I came away more inspired by him than ever, in part because I didn't really fully appreciate the depth of his of his faith. Hmm. And and I am a fairly observant Jew, not the most observant. My rabbi would tell you that he'd like to see me a lot more yeah. um, in synagogue. But um, I had never spent so much time exploring the mind of somebody who was just completely and utterly true to his faith um, guided by his by his by his call um, from, from the, you know the, the feeling that he had to live up to the words of Christianity he had to live up to to the example of Jesus and even though he failed at times um, when he could have stepped back every time he could have um, taken an easy way out he refused to do that because he was he was true to his his faith all right. Well, I had some other questions, but that answer just kind of opened the door. Um, <laughs> I thought you might so, have a follow-up there. Yes. So, listen, uh, I'm an African-American man. We have known in our community for years um, about King's infidelities. Um, it's interesting. I, I think it's with, within the last 20 years or so that that secret's really kind of gotten out. Um, and in the black community— uh, and, and I say this with a whole bunch of caution. We have this thing of we don't air our dirty laundry. Uh, and King is on the Mount Rushmore as it relates to the most revered leaders in our in our community. Uh, and so even though we knew of his infidelities, we just we just kind of kept it hush. 
I read your book, and a part of the reason why I picked up your book is uh, one of the selling points for me was, um, you know, the classified FBI documents, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think of uh, you of all the other biographers, because you're most recent to write on King, you had access to more information as it relates to those classified FBI documents. Um, Hoover. Uh, was obsessed with discrediting King. That's no historical secret. Um, and bugged all kinds of places, hotel rooms, uh, friends' homes that King stayed at. And along the way, he ran into this dark side of King. And when we talk about King's affairs, at least what I've gleaned from it, and I'll just stick to kind of what you're writing, um, it's it's not it's not a one-off here or one-off there. You make mention of Dorothy Cotton. I had always known of Dorothy Cotton um, and had just kind of, you know, revered her to be a legendary uh, leader in the movement, which she was. But I was shocked to hear that she was King's, I think to use your terminology, uh, considered King's second wife. Uh, and that oftentimes when King came back from trips. He would stop by her apartment first uh, before he he went home. Um, so, in the conservative Christian mindset, I'll use your word when you spoke of Ali. There is a sense in which we can be conflicted about King, and I raise this now because you talk about the authenticity of his faith. And in conservative circles, the sexual ethic is a really high ethic. And so what, how would you speak to a certain sect of Christianity who would feel conflicted that here you have an individual who seems to give a lot of at least vocal credence to the Christian faith, but he lives this life of an adulterer? Um, I, I even remember reading uh, one book, Hellhound on His Trail, um, in which, you know, when King uh, gets gets assassinated, they're putting his body in the ambulance. One of his um, one of his affairs that, that he's had the night before in Memphis, she tries to get into the ambulance. It's such a pervasive part of his life that I think a lot of people would push back and say, I don't know how authentic his faith was. What would you say to that, Jonathan? Well, uh, this does not excuse it, but certainly throughout all of history, men of great faith have struggled with uh, faith in their marriages. And um, that, to me, what's most important and why it has to be dealt with in writing about Martin Luther King is that his infidelities, his um, marital issues were exploited by the federal government in an attempt to destroy him and destroy the civil rights movement. So I try to keep all of that in context when I write about it. It's it's important to understand King's marriage. Um, it's important to understand the strength of Coretta Scott King, knowing that her husband was um, not faithful and carrying on because she believed in him and believed in the mission. Um, knowing that King had this weakness and um, could not control himself, even when he knew the federal government was 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 listening in on his conversations with these women, whether they were bugging his hotel rooms, he still could not control himself. Um, all of that, you know, definitely speaks to his own moral failings. But to me, the big issue is that um, the the reason that it's 
it's most important is that the government weaponized that that to uh, not just destroy him, but to divide and conquer the civil rights leaders and to damage the civil rights movement and to set back the fight for equality. Is it fair to say um, on this note, you know, um, Hoover, and rightly so, um, he, he gets the lion's share of the blame for this. He's definitely the one, at least based on what I read from your book and other books, that is really putting a full court press on people like Lyndon Johnson before that JFK to say, "Listen, we've we've got to do this. We've got to we've got to you know tap his phones, things of that nature." But would you also say? Bobby Kennedy, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and others were were as complicit in this. Absolutely, um, it's you know it's it's tempting to try to blame it all on J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, but it's it's uh, not fair really because um, RFK authorizes the wiretaps. JFK knows about it. LBJ um, actually encourages it and encourages uh, the FBI to leak material on King to the media. And the media um, is complicit, too, because they don't report on the fact that they know the federal government is conducting surveillance on a private citizen. And and other members of Congress know about it as well. And they seem to enjoy having this gossip about King when that's all it is at a certain point. they He's not a threat in any way. The fact that he's cheating on Coretta doesn't have any policy uh, relevance, doesn't affect um, the their their work in trying to pass legislation. So it's really just salacious gossip at that point. Okay. Um, so I, I want to now speak to that listener who may be brand new to this aspect of who King is. Um, Hoover went so far as to mail tapes and correspondence to King's wife, Coretta, along these lines. Can, can, you, can you unpack that uh, for us, Jonathan? Yeah, and it's worth pointing out before I get into the details of that, that the surveillance and the attacks on King really begin after the March on Washington. Hmm. Why? Let's think about that for a second. It's because King has presented a vision for a new kind of American race relations, Hmm. a new kind of society in which black and white people really exist in harmony and and are treated equally. And that is seen as a threat to the FBI. Hmm. That is seen as a change in the power structure. J. Edgar Hoover's job, as he's always viewed it, um, is to preserve the status quo, to maintain power for those who have it. Hmm. And he sees this as a threat to who's in charge, to the power structure in American society. So that's why we see the FBI beginning to take these tapes to uh, from his hotel rooms, uh, create a compilation of what they consider the most outrageous moments on these tapes, mail it to King's home, along with a note that purports to be written by a black man saying, we have the goods on you. This is all going to be exposed. The only way out for you is to end it all, mm. suggesting that he should commit suicide and setting a specific date by when that should occur. And and that's because um, the FBI, the FBI has written this themselves and mailed it to Coretta because they're hoping to destroy him. They're hoping that if he doesn't commit suicide, he will at least resign um, his marriage will be broken up. Um, Coretta will divorce him, and, and that will destroy his reputation. In some way, they just want to take him down because they view him as the most powerful and most dangerous black man in America. Wow. So so here's what I want you um, listeners to understand. It's, to me, the brilliance, and again, I don't say this to flatter you, Jonathan, because I've, I've read so many biographies. I've read so much on King. The brilliance of your biography to me is 
even in getting into the muck of a person's personal life, which I think you have to uh, in the case of King, because it it's such a um, it's such a, a narrative of his life, and yet you write in such a way to where it's it's not tabloidish. Um, it's it's interesting. In fact, on page five fifty six of your biography, you have a zinger of a line that for me tells me everything a person needs to know about your book. So if someone were to say to me, hey, hey Brian, just 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 tell me kind of the the philosophical undercurrent of Jonathan's writing on King, it would be this line on 556. Uh, you you say of of King that that by hollowing him, H-A-L-L-O-W-I-N-G, we actually hollow H-O-L-L-O-W him. In other words, to just kind of present the best side of King's uh, proverbial face is to actually do damage to who he is. Can you unpack that a little bit more for us, Jonathan? Yeah, I think it's one of the, I think I think it's unintended consequence of the national holiday and the uh, monument in Washington that when you turn someone into um, a celebration, when you turn him into a holiday and a monument and a, and a national hero, you run the risk of losing sight of his true courage, his true humanity. And King has become this very sort of safe figure. Even if you look at the monument, if, which I visited last year with my kids um, at the mall on Washington, uh, you know, opposite the Tidal Basin, um, it's spectacular. But it it turns him into this giant, untouchable um, figure that you can't relate to at all. And all the quotes on the wall are these inspiring words. And there's nothing human about it. I think King would would hate being seen that way. He was a humble man. Um, and when you go to the gift shop, there's none of his books there, so you still can't even find his own words, his own re, his own re, view of reality. Um, and and when so my the point uh, when I say that we've we've in hallowing him, we've hallowed him, is that um, we've we've we lose sight of him as a human being, and and we lose the ability to really relate to him. And how can you ever try to walk in his footsteps if you don't see him as a as a human being? Yeah, so it's it's little things like, and you uh, allude to it in your biography. He he enjoyed playing the game of pool. He had uh, an incredible sense of humor. I didn't realize this until I actually walked through the National Civil Rights Museum, which of course is in in Memphis. They took the old Lorraine Motel and uh, and turned it into a museum. They tried to preserve um, you know his room the way it would have been. Uh, I remember the first time walking through there, and it was littered with cigarettes. Yeah, he smoked. Uh, I. I I did not realize uh, any idea how much he smoked, which, which, by the way, if I got the amount of death threats, if anybody got the amount of death threats that King got, you would be tempted to smoke as well. Any idea how much he smoked? No, it was he. He would never smoke in public. He would, except you know, occasionally you'll see a picture of him in the airport where he thinks he's alone and yeah. and he, he he has a cigarette. Um, you know, I I think I, t- I talked to his driver. He said it was less than it was much less than a pack a day. It okay. was um, just a, you know a few cigarettes a day. And his kids, he would have to hide them from his kids because his kids would would steal them and 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 put them in the garbage if they found them. Um, but yeah, it's important. Those little details go a long way in, in helping us understand him. He chewed his fingernails, you oh. know, which also a possible sign of anxiety. Harry Belafonte told me he had this little hiccup in the back of his throat huh. that was almost constant. Uh, and then it went away one day. And Belafonte asked him, you know, how he had cured himself. And, and King said, well, I made peace with death. Mm. And the hiccup went away. 
Wow, wow. Um, the, the other thing al- along that same line of by hallowing him, we actually hollow him, is one of the things you point out, and it was kind of a moment where I just kind of paused and stopped reading uh, to try to picture it. You point out that in certain settings, uh, if King if were to walk into the room, um, say he was invited to the White House, I think, I think you use this um, example, in meetings at the White House, there would be times in which King would be around the table and he wouldn't say much. Like, you would not know he was Martin Luther King Jr. um, just because he wasn't this naturally gregarious personality in certain settings. Do I have that right, Jonathan? Yeah, he's not the kind of person who needed to hear himself speak. He was a very good listener. And he was also, remember, really young. So when he goes to meet with President Kennedy... He's 12 years younger than our youngest president ever. He's 12 years younger than JFK. And when he's meeting with folks like, you know, Roy Wilkins and A. Philip Randolph, he's in awe. These are the men of his father's generation. And he's also, this has struck me as really kind of uh, interesting, ironic for our greatest protest leader. He doesn't like conflict. He doesn't like being in an argument, especially with older people, and especially with his father. So he's always looking just to sort of listen and, and say yes and g- agree with everybody and hope that the group comes to a consensus. And if they don't, he'll gently try to pull everybody toward one of the, you know, toward a toward a, a decision. But he always wants to do it in a way that doesn't make enemies, that doesn't offend anyone in the group. He wants everybody to, to he, wants, he wants to be liked, um, which is just so interesting for somebody whose job is really to stir up conflict. Yeah, I was I was going to press you on that, Jonathan, to to not like interpersonal conflict. You know, it's it's no secret his his strategy with the civil rights movement was to go into places and where there was like a a bull Connor, uh, where where there are these contentious individuals to utilize media uh, to have a big clash that would kind of prick the collective conscience of America, move us to action. Like his movement uh, rose and fell on documented conflict. By the way, um, it, for me, it was a failure. Taylor Branch doesn't see it as a failure. Uh, I think it was, um, was it the Albany? Mm-hmm. I always get Albany and saying, it, it was, maybe it was Albany, where where the police chief said, hey, man, uh, I've been taking notes. We are not going to go the way of previous people who just kind of allowed the bear to be poked and went crazy. Now, we're actually um, kind of downplay things, and I think that's why it wasn't as successful. But how do you how do you reconcile those two things? The public king had to have conflict. Yeah. But personally and privately, he hated conflict. I think, first of all, you have to give him more credit because he's doing something that's out of his comfort zone. Um, you know, even in Montgomery, when he's leading the bus boycott, his father comes several times and says, you got to stop. You got to let someone else lead this thing. This is too dangerous. You're, you've got a, a wife and a new baby, you know, and, and he can't even argue with his father. He, he just says to his father, okay, you know, we'll see and ends the conversation like that. It's always just like, let's just, you know, let, let let's just see if we can get out of this conversation with the least possible conflict. Then I'm going to do what I want to do, but he can't stand up to his old man. And uh, for him to go and 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 
he knows that what he needs in Birmingham is for the, is for is for Bull Connor to lose his cool. He knows the same thing in Selma. He needs Jim Clark to lose his cool, um, but it's not in his nature. So to me, that just makes it more impressive that he's able and he knows what he needs to do and he can and he can find the way to do it, um, even though he'd prefer to uh, to somehow broker an agreement. Well, so w- one of the things that I'm I'm trying to do here, it's the primary thing I'm trying to do, Jonathan, is to kind of pick pockets of King's life that aren't as well known, uh, that aren't as popularized, uh, pockets of which you you draw out. Again, not in a way that is tabloidish. Um, you know, sometimes you read a biographer. And on one extreme, you go, this person's too enchanted. On the other extreme, you go, this person has an ax to grind. I just feel like you let King's life speak and you are not afraid to go places. One of the things that may surprise some of our listeners is that King, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on my language, but he seemed to have fallen madly in love uh, with a white woman when he was at seminary. Can you uh, unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, you know, King was always popular with the ladies. Uh, he was charming. He was funny. He was smart. Um, he had a car, which also helped. Um, you know, he was only the five seven. Uh, so one of the, every time you talk to somebody who who met King, especially the young women uh, who met him, they would say, "Oh, he was much shorter than I expected." But <laughs> it's always he was. That's always the first thing they say. He was he was really short. But and even Coretta um, said as soon as she got in the car when he picked him up. Uh, when when he picked her up for their first date, uh, even in the car, she could tell he's short, <laughs> but <laughs> but he's charming, um, and and he's he seems. Uh, Dorothy Cotton said he seemed to have this feeling that he had to win away the the, the most the, the most beautiful girls. You know, the girl hmm. who's dating the f- captain of the football team. King had to prove that he could that he could that he could uh, attract her. He had this so this great confidence, and he seemed to really um, enjoy. The challenge. Um, so when he gets to Crozer Seminary in Pennsylvania, there's a beautiful young woman named Betty Moy. It's a white girl who was dating a, a professor at the time, and King uh, wins Betty away from this professor and um, and <laughs> begins to date her and um, falls in love. You know, he really wants to marry her. Says to his friends that um, this is the one for me, and even you know talks to his um, mentor um, J. Pius Barber, who's a pastor of a church nearby, you know, what if I said, you, I want you to marry us right now? And Barbara says, well, it would be the the death of your career if you have any hope of going back down south and becoming a, a preacher in a, in a church in the south, a black church in the south, you're, you're doomed and mm. uh, you're not going to get a white church either. So where does that leave you? Hmm. And King says, well, maybe love is more important than my career. Hmm. And uh, Barbara says, maybe it is. But King, you know, I've given some time to think about it, changes his mind, says, you know, he's going to he's going to leave Bet, uh, Betty and uh, he breaks up with her. And um, Harry Belafonte told me that King never got over it. That wow. Wow. even, you know, d- decades later, he was still curious, you know, what might have happened if, if he had stuck, if, he'd, if he had stayed with Betty. What was your sense, Jonathan? Was your sense that if King would have proposed to her, that she would have said yes? Yeah, I think she might have. I think that um, she, um, I didn't get to interview her, but she did give an interview shortly before she passed away. And um, she never said that she was opposed to the idea. She said it was just, it was King's choice. You know, it was um, Martin's choice to break it off. And she, I, I got the impression she would have gone through with it. Okay. All right. Um, here's another pocket that, um, um, 
that is disturbing in, in my in my community, um, and that is again, I'd almost put it on the same level as King's affairs. For years, it was whispered about that that King had plagiarized. He um, he is a bit of an academic prodigy. Uh, his intelligence um, is undisputed. Um, I think he. How old is he when he graduates from Morehouse? Is he sixteen when he graduates from Morehouse? I think he's um, 17. He, gra- he, he goes in at, at 15. Um, okay. And graduates at, at 18, maybe. Okay. Um, but yeah, he's, he's much younger than his classmates. Yeah. Graduating college at 18. Um, he's really young when he graduates or, or earns his PhD. In fact, uh, he, he's finishing up while he's at Dexter, if I've got that right, which was his right. first and really only senior pastorate. He would be co-pastor at, uh, at Ebenezer. And so, uh, listen, I, I do a little bit of teaching. I was teaching at this one seminary, and um, after class, uh, the dean of our department invited me and some of the other profs over for dinner. The, the conversation turns to King. I'm the only black person at the table. Um, and so they begin to accuse King of plagiarism. Now, this, this must have been 10, 15 years ago. And there's a sense in which, uh, for me— I always heard that as rumor, and I put it in the category of, oh, they're just trying to discredit King. Yours is the first book that I read, and let's start with Stanford. Um, if I if I read you right, there's a group of people who researched this at Stanford, and they reached the conclusion of plagiarism. C- can you expound on that, Jonathan? Yeah, the, the researchers at Stanford found that King plagiarized his doctoral dissertation. And he did it in a really heavy-handed way, taking not just chunks of writing, but really the entire structure uh, from, a, from a doctoral dissertation that had been submitted uh, just a few years earlier to the same professor that he was working with. So his advisor for his dissertation um, should have spotted this because it was plagiarized from another dissertation that he had worked on just years or a few years earlier. So to me, that's an interesting sign that King is stealing from plagiarizing from such an obvious source that he's really not concerned with getting caught. He's not trying too hard to cover his tracks. Um, and, and I think that some of this has to do with the fact that he is, um, you know, he did rush through, through high school and college and he cut a few corners. He's lacking some skills. He's not a very good speller, for example. His grammar is not very good. He's, his, his sister has to tutor him in math, even just to get him through high school, because he skipped a couple of grades and it, and it hurt him. And by the time he, and, and I also think the other factor is that he's, he's raised in the church where, you know, people borrow from sermons all the time. If you hear someone give a sermon that you like, you try it out yourself. And that continues. That continues today, Jonathan. Absolutely, <laughs> I'm sure it does. And so, so it's possible that in his, given his his experience in the church, he doesn't see any harm or doesn't see much harm in this sort of plagiarism because he's not really raised in this rigorous academic environment. And his advisors at Morehouse and then at Crozier and then at Boston University, are not really stressing to him the importance of, of academic originality. I discovered that he actually also plagiarized a speech in high school. He, he finished third. Think about Martin Luther King finished thing third in a statewide <laughs> public speaking contest. But he finished third, and that speech had been plagiarized. And once again, he stole it from the most obvious source. There was a, a popular book that was in a lot of school libraries called uh, 50 Prize-Winning 
um, speeches for students. So he goes to a book of, 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 of speeches that he knows have been successful in the past, and he borrows one of them. So um, he was not doing a very good job of trying to hide it. So um, I, I, I do want to get in the weeds just, just for like 30 seconds. When you say borrow heavily, heavily uh, as it relates to his dissertation, are we talking uh, ripping off whole chapters, whole sections? Uh, any idea how many words uh, that that can be proved that King plagiarized? Yeah, big big chunks, like uh, and and many sentences, you know, verbatim, copied verbatim, uh, but also you know, lots of ideas. I get the impression that one of the things he did was he worked with note cards. So he would read a dissertation or a book. He would copy down what he wanted out of it, but he would not write down the source for it. So when it came time to put that note card into his dissertation, he had no idea where it came from and assumed and treated it as if it were his own, um, feeling uh, no compunction about a citation. And, And he did that over and over again. So many whole sentences and paragraphs were copied directly from other sources. Okay. This is this is very helpful. Um, you, you know, so right before we we came on, um, you did this theme of plagiarizing carry over into a vast majority of King's speeches that he gave? D- did he have someone who wrote his speeches? Did King write his own speeches if he wrote them? Um, you know, was he good about giving credit to other people uh, and their ideas? Uh, so just take us into King the Orator and the subject of plagiarizing. King uh, relied on a lot of people to help him with his speeches. Um, his sermons, he mostly wrote himself, but his speeches, he needed, he asked for help. And his books he and, and magazine articles, he had a lot of people helping him write those. And he did not do a great job of giving them credit. Uh, I think he felt like, you know, and he was a very busy guy. Remember, he's giving, you know, sometimes, you know, dozens of speeches and sermons a week. He's traveling constantly. He's writing his Sunday sermon. You know, most of the time he's delivering his own Sunday sermons for his congregations. And you know, there's just no way that he could write all the things he's being asked to write. So he he finds a reliable group of people. Bayard Rustin is one, Stanley Levison is one, Vincent Harding, and he asks them to write speeches. And sometimes he, they write a draft and he makes it his own. You know, he he. But other times he just takes it and reads it. Um, you know, my favorite speech, uh, the the speech that he gave at Morningside Church, Riverside Church, in um, in New York on April fourth, nineteen sixty six, was written almost entirely by Vincent Harding, and King didn't read it until shortly before delivering the speech, and he only just quickly looked it over. Interesting. Yeah, I don't want anybody to leave here though. Um, you know, it's it's a fine line when we even talk about um, public addresses, right? Because the average U.S. president, uh, they have speechwriters, right? Um, and it's not like they give them credit, right? Absolutely. Um, so I, I want us to be careful there. And by no means do I want anybody to leave thinking. Uh, that King was uh, intellectually lazy or unintelligent. I mean, if you just look at his letter from a Birmingham jail um, in which they are smuggling in kind of scraps of paper, newspapers, King is writing this thing on the margins of of the newspapers and kind of secretly, um, you know, giving them out. It's If you've read the letter, it's brilliant. It is... Absolutely brilliant. So, you know, when we talk about plagiarism, I, I want to, 
I, I, part of me does say it's horrible, especially in an academic setting, and that was really disheartening. Uh, but the other part of me uh, wants to just acknowledge that there were some protocols that still do continue to this day as it relates to presidents uh, and speechwriters. That's a factor to consider. And then I think what Jonathan says, I, th- I even think one of, the, one of the things you point out in the book, Jonathan, is that on average, King slept, what, three to four hours a night? Right. Um, and just the demands and the time that was on him. And then also in the publishing world, there's a very real thing called ghostwriters. And we can have a long ethical conversation on that. I'm of the opinion to where if I have, I've written a few things, if a person um, writes something uh, for me and my name's on it, that, that their name should go on there too. That's just me. I also know a lot of people, especially preachers and pastors, uh, who don't hold to that same thing. And it's an interesting conversation uh, to have. Anything else on the plagiarism deal, Jonathan, that you wanted to point out before we move on? Yeah, I just want to say that King always said that he thought of himself as a preacher. That was his job. And that meant preaching to save the soul of, save the souls of his congregation, to save the soul of the nation. And that means that he saw his job as, as being heard, delivering a message, changing people's minds, changing their, their actions. And when that's your job, when that's your goal, um, you know, writing isn't the most important part of it. It's, it's getting that message out in the strongest way possible to the most people possible. So if he called on help, um, if he plagiarized from time to time, I'm not excusing it, he didn't see that as the priority. He was not looking to be published and to earn tenure at a university. Yes. He was looking to, to change minds and change hearts and change souls. That's good. All right, Jonathan, uh, we're wrapping up here. Two major things as we, uh, as we round third and head for home. One is... My understanding of King is um, it felt like to me that Selma was the grand crescendo of his life. After Selma, uh, not long after that, he goes to Chicago. Uh, He wants to see reform happen up north. It's important that that we understand, you even point this out in your book, uh, not everyone internally at the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, was really on board with that move. King makes that move anyways. Uh, it's questionable to me how successful it was. Um, he did make some gains, but there were some concessions as well. And then at the same time, uh, he becomes to be very vocally outspoken on Vietnam. Uh, to me, it ruins his relationship, right, wrong, or indifferent, with uh, with President Johnson. Um, we were talking about before we got on the podcast. I, I'm with you. My favorite speech of King's is not the March on Washington. I have a dream speech. It's the one he gives at uh, the Riverside Church there. And then right at the end, he's got this vision for a poor people's campaign. Um, and again, even as lieutenants, they seem a bit lukewarm about it. Um, it just feels like after Selma, King is is reaching for things. Um, and, and then there's the famous break between him and Stokely Carmichael and the Black Power Movement and, S- and the SNCC Movement. Many of them uh, break off and they form this new thing called the Black Panthers. Do, do you see in the arc of King's life that Selma is kind of his grand crescendo or, or are we misreading King there? Well, I think in terms of his 
success in terms of you know winning the day, yes, uh, Selma's the the last high water mark because it leads to the passage of the Voting Rights Act, which is um, still to this day and you know one of the most important pieces of legislation ever passed, even as some are trying to undermine it. Um, but what I think is really interesting is that after that, a lot of his most reliable advisors, including people who are far more progressive in many ways than King, um, traditionally, uh, people like Bayard Rustin are saying, don't go to Chicago. Don't deal with Northern issues of poverty and segregation. Don't talk about the war. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep focusing on voting rights. Keep getting people registered to vote in the South, and we can gradually gain power. We can control the legislatures in the South. We can get more Black people or more friendly people elected to Congress. We can pass fair housing legislation. So don't bother. Don't go to Chicago where you don't know what you're doing, where you're up against forces beyond your, your control. Stick to the South. That's where you're most effective. And King won't do it. He refuses to take that advice, which is probably the smart, practical thing to do. Uh, because he says, I'm a preacher. Again, it's not about what's the politically correct. It's about what's morally correct. I need to go and teach the people in the North that they're as racist as the people in the South. The white white people in the North are just hiding it better and they're getting away with it. They, I need to call it out. He's a more, he's, you know, he's, he's, He's taking the moral high ground yet again, and he's refusing to do the the easy thing. And the same thing on the war. He knows it's going to cost him support. He knows that it's going to cost him um, funding. He knows that it's going to jeopardize his relationship with LBJ. But he believes it's the right thing to do because the Bible tells us that that man, men and women are all brothers and sisters. That we can't fight each other. We should not, you know, um, view each other as 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 enemies. Um, and, and he takes this idealistic, this moral high ground, and, it, and he pays the price for it over and over again. Yes. Um, you know, so, so King, I, I'm indebted to him. Um, I, I think it's also important that we point out something that you do point out about King is in a day in which a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, there are more than enough examples of celebrity, uh, pastors, preachers, who have been accused of being funny with the money. You, you, you could never accuse King of that, almost to the detriment of his own family. Um, you point out how uh, you know they had just moved into this new home in Atlanta, and he didn't want uh, Coretta to you know, go overboard and decorate in a certain way. In fact, I think you said something about not wanting carpeting or something in some of the rooms or whatever. So, it, And even when King wins the Nobel Peace Prize, which I think was 50-something thousand dollars, he, he gives all of that away to the SCLC. So um, there, there is a lot of King um, that, you know, is great. And then there's some of some some things in King that we wince at. But I go all the way back to your point about hallowing versus hollowing. And I, I read King and I go, I see myself in some ways in his life. Our, our uh, particular vices might be different, uh, but there are some things in me that... Um, that I'm, I'm very proud of, and there's some things that I struggle with that I'm, I'm not as proud of. And to me, what human can't say that? I, I think that's, that's part of what it means to be human. Exactly. Last thing, Jonathan, and I'll let you go with this. 
What is King's lasting legacy? Specifically when we think of, I'll just ask it to you this way. Was King just merely happy with the activist hat? And what I mean by that is, uh, would King be content to just change laws? Or do you also see him taking it a step forward and putting on the reconciling hat and him wanting to see people legitimately come together? Was he more activist or more reconciler to you, Jonathan? I think he was um, more and more, you know, he was he was thrown into this role as an activist. That, that was not what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. He was asked to lead the Montgomery bus boycott, and one thing led to another, and he finds himself the leader of this incredible grassroots movement. But he was always a reconciler at heart. Hmm. And I think when you look at what he was trying to do at the end, first of all, he's in Memphis. Uh, again, his advisors are saying, don't go. He's in Memphis because the, the the sanitation workers there are being mistreated, and he's trying to help them uh, be heard. And, and, and he's being warned that this is distracting him from his work. He's supposed to be setting up the Poor People's Campaign in Washington, D.C., and he describes the Poor People's Campaign as the, the culmination of everything he's ever tried to do. This is the last call, he says, to save the soul of America. And it's not about civil rights anymore. It's about human rights. He wants to bring together black, white, uh, Hispanic, everybody poor, rich, war protesters. He wants everyone to come together and to occupy Washington, D.C., in essence, until the government really thinks hard about restructuring our economy in a more just way. It's about creating um, not just um, support system, but a, a, a new kind of thinking about democracy and, and a more open one that, it, that it invites everybody into the tent and and he really believes that we can change that america can re rethink its approach to to how we treat each other and that it goes beyond race uh, and and that's his vision and he's he's willing to risk everything his, everything he's built to try to accomplish that well thanks jonathan this has been such an enriching conversation can't thank you enough for taking time to do this you've been listening to the summit church's kainos podcast. We are a pastoral podcast focused on issues of ethnic unity within a large, predominantly white Southern church. Jonathan Eig is a real gift uh, to the world in our current cultural moment. And I don't, I don't say that, um, again, to flatter him. Uh, I want to encourage you, pick up his books. He's written extensively, wonderful biographical masterpieces, award-winning uh, books on people like uh, the New York Yankees, uh, legendary Lou Gehrig, people like Muhammad Ali. And his latest biography is simply called King A Life. I want to highly encourage you to get it. I know we've gotten into some very uncomfortable things uh, about King, but I want you to take away from this conversation King's absolute commitment to reconciliation and to also see yourself in King. No, your vice may not be the same as his, but all of us in all of us have this thing that uh, the Bible talks about flesh versus spirit. This this good versus bad that constantly wars within us and to see yourself in the life of King. Thanks again. Jonathan, this has been a great conversation and I look forward to more works from you. On that note, are you you working on anything now? Uh, thank you, Brian, for those kind words. I have some ideas for the next one, but I haven't settled on one. So if you got something, shoot it my way. Let me know. Will do. Will do. All Thanks right. a lot, Jonathan. Thank you.